Thank you so much for wonderful singing this morning and uh, patience with us there. The passage we just read from Mark chapter 12 continues us on our journey through this wonderful book. Um, and it's now Tuesday of the last week of the Lord's life before His crucifixion. It's been called the Day of Questions. And we've already seen why, because um, it's just a day full of people coming to Him and questioning Him. The priests, the scribes, and the elders asking about His authority to teach in the temple. And we talked about that last week. In our text today, the Pharisees and the Herodians came to Him to ask Him a question about paying tribute to Caesar. In our next lesson, when we're together again, we'll see a question about the resurrection from the Sadducees of all people who didn't really even believe in the resurrection. And then that'll be followed by another question about the commandments. And of course, in the midst of all these questions that Jesus is being asked, Jesus becomes the questioner, right? He asks questions back. We saw him last week, the brilliance in backing the Jews, the Jewish leaders into a corner, beating them at their own game, right? Ask me um, how, what authority I do these works by, then I'll ask you something. And they asked about John the Baptist, and they couldn't answer, and so he didn't answer their question. In our text today, you may have noticed that Jesus asks actually a couple of questions as part of his answering back to him. Questions are great conversation tools, by the way, a great way to get into conversations. Even when questioned by others, ask questions back. We're usually eager just to tell everybody what we know, but sometimes asking some questions uh, can get you into a good place. Uh, one example I use is oftentimes I'm asked, what is a Reformed Baptist? What in the world does that mean? And so I usually try to remember to ask back this question, well, what do you think a Baptist is? Or what is your experience with Baptists? Because if I just jump into telling them things, they may really not have wanted to know and may not have known anything about Baptists, or they had preconceived notions about what a Baptist is, and in this area of the world, it's very likely they've encountered a few. And so uh, questions are just great tools. Just remember that. But let's look at some of these characters before we talk a lot about what's happening in this text. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, we've talked a lot about Pharisees, and probably all of you know something about Pharisees. If I were to ask you, you could at least tell me something. They're, men they're mentioned often. In fact, individually or collectively, nearly 100 times in the New Testament, Pharisees are mentioned. <clears throat> For the most part, we do consider them bad, right? It's not a, it's not a good way to... Um, it's not a good way to look at somebody if we call them a Pharisee. That's an insult, uh, slanderous. And it's because they were very legalistic, cold, cruel. And for the most part, they adhered more to an added oral tradition which they had codified into books. They adhered to those laws more than they adhered to the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's one of the reasons they get such a bad rap. They have found ways to not only keep the Sabbath, but they had delineated you can only eat one egg, or you can only tote what you could carry in a spoon, and all that. You could read those things. It's crazy some of the laws that they come up with, what's considered working on the Sabbath. But they get a bad rap for that, and, and rightfully so. A lot of their religion was done for show. You know, Jesus, I think, even said, don't, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't go out in public and pray and do everything so people will see what you're doing. Go into your closet and pray, he said. 
But actually, there were a few times in Scripture where Pharisees were not seen in a bad light. For example, um, they, there was a time where some Pharisees warned Jesus that his life was in danger. There were times where they invited Jesus to meals. There were times even uh, they protected Christians. Um, and some, of course, even wanted to believe and follow Christ. The most notable, you would all know, Nicodemus, for example. Paul even said that he was a Pharisee, you might remember, before his conversion. But overall, it's correct to paint them in a bad light because, after all, Jesus usually did and usually used them as an example of what not to be. So you probably know the, the, the Pharisees, but it may be new to you considering Herodians. Unless you've really read a lot of Scripture and for some reason just wanted to study this, you might not be aware of who they are. But they were a party of Jews that supported the ruling authority of the Herodian dynasty. So they were fans of Herod. And you might recall that the Herods, the line of Herods, first of all, were not pure Jews. They were Jewish, but they weren't pure Jews. And they were basically puppet kings under Rome, right? They didn't really do what was best for their people. They did what was best for their job and for um, Rome. And so they were despised by many of the Jews because of their support for Herod. So if you're wondering, well, who are the Herodians? They supported Herod and his taxation and everything. And so normally the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling class of Jewish leaders, made up of scribes, Pharisees, we talk about them a lot. Them and the Herodians would not get along because for the most part the Jews hated the Roman authority over them. You can imagine they... Uh, as proud people, they did not like having a ruler over them. They longed for the days of uh, Jewish independence and be living in the promised land. In fact, that's one of the reasons they missed the Messiah, right? They thought when the Messiah would come, he would tumble Rome and reinstitute uh, the Old Testament law and the, the, the theocracy of the Old Testament, and they'd be back in charge again. And so they couldn't understand why Jesus is coming, talking about, no, don't kill your enemy, but love your enemy. See, that was... They, they, it blew their minds. They didn't understand. But normally, you can understand why the Jews and the Herodians would not be friends. But in this case, as I mentioned last week, um, war making strange bedfellows, and your enemy is my enemy, therefore we can be friends and destroy our enemy. That's kind of the way this went. In fact, back in Mark chapter 3, uh, Mark records for us that the Pharisees held a council with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. So this is probably part of that coming to fruition all the way in chapter 12 now, that plan to destroy him because it seems like these things are just coming. Jesus answers one question, he moves a little bit, here comes some more people with some more questions, right? And so we are told that these men, these Herodians and these Pharisees, were sent, according to Mark, to trap Jesus in his talk. Now we hear that and think, oh, they just want to catch him and say, aha, See, he's a liar. He's not telling the truth, or he, he's not of God. But this word trap is a, has a very different meaning uh, if you look at it. In fact, um, I can't remember the big, long word that's used, but this is one of those words that this is the only time that it's ever used in the New Testament. So it's hard to gather a lot of information about it. Um, but anyways, it basically means uh, to set a trap as if you were a hunter trying to snare an animal. So you might dig a deep hole and put sharp objects at the bottom so when the animal falls into the hole, he's really snared and trapped. So this is not just like, oh, we just want to catch Jesus in something and, and prove something. No, they wanted to catch him so they could destroy him. That kind of trap. 
And so they bait their trap with honey, right? Teacher, they say, we know that you're true and you do not care by anyone's opinion, especially ours, they could have said. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly you teach the way of God. And of course, the people listening would have had to know they're full of baloney. I mean, these people hate Jesus, but they're trying to, again, this is part of the trap. Hey, you can't lie. You're a teacher of God, so we're going to remind people that there's no way you can get out of this question we're about to ask you. And so they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, if he answers one way, he will alienate himself from the people who hated the Herodians and hated the taxes and were burdened underneath the weight of all that, right? If he answers another way, then the trap will work and he'll be turned over for insubordination and he will be put to death. But Mark says, knowing their hypocrisy, you remember John told us that Jesus didn't have need of anybody to tell him what was in man. He knew what was in man. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. Now, denarius was a very small piece of um, coinage that was used in this day. Really, the only coin that uh, most of the common people would have been able to obtain. Somebody said it's worth kind of would be close to about 18 cents. One, one day's wage is what it was. And on it, it would have pictures of uh, the Herod and uh, that area. And, of course, I think it would have pictures of um, the, other, the other leaders as well. And it would say things on it like um, uh, Caesar is king. And not only that, but these are the divines. The Caesar is divine. And so he asked him, give me a denarius. And, then he, and, and once he gets it, he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And he's asking these questions again. And they said, Caesar's. And then he gives this remarkable answer, right? And I know you've read and we've heard about before. And sometimes we don't like it ourselves. But this is what Jesus said. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And of course, they marveled at him. Now, once again... The question, the one being questioned becomes the questioner, and he teaches. And those that were trying to teach became the pupils because they were before the Lord of glory. And whenever he declares class in session, then it's time to learn, even if you don't want to learn. These people didn't want to learn, but they're learning. And Jesus escapes the trap that was set for him. They just had no idea how outmatched they are. But he gently threads a needle between all the groups represented. Those who hated Rome but loved God, he said to them, the God that you love has ordained these civil magistrates and given them authority in certain areas. Obey them to a certain extent. To those of you who don't care for God but love Rome, why do you accept the idolatrous blasphemy of emperor worship You're right on one hand to acknowledge Rome's authority, but you steal glory from the one true God who created the government and the ones you're worshiping. So he threads this needle between everybody so that everybody has to be satisfied with his answer. The common people who heard Jesus, they would rejoice and take comfort in the fact that God had called them to live in these these two kingdoms for now. 
So this burden would be lifted somewhat. And they could understand that there was some providence involved, that we pay these tributes because for whatever reason, God has Rome right where he has them at the time. This really is the basis for what is called the two-kingdom theology. That God has ordained civil magistrates and given them authority, and we are citizens under that authority to the extent that we comply up to the point of disobeying God, right? Because those citizens here were only pilgrim citizens, right? We're just passing through. Because we're really citizens of a kingdom mostly invisible to this world. A city whose builder and maker is God. A kingdom that many say is, but not yet. And so this idea of two-kingdom theology is very, very important. But the Bible is clear about this. And here's some passages that you're familiar with probably, but I'll read back through them for, for you. Romans 13, 1 through 7, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those uh, who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, if you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all who what, is, what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, where in the world do you think Paul got that? I mean, it sounds like what Jesus just said, right? Render unto Caesar what is his, and unto God's what is God's. Now, there's a lot of things to be said about that because what do you do when the civil authority ceases to be a servant of good, right? And those are things that we could take up later, but for the sake of time today, I'm, I'm going to try to get through this just sort of introductory idea of this two-kingdom theology. But there's other passages, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 through 6. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made to all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. See, this is the place where God commands us to pray for our leaders, even the ones we don't like, right? And even the ones that don't do what we want them to do. And it's a hard thing to do. I get it. But he goes on to say, For there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And see, there's that mixture. Hey, you're in this kingdom but hey, don't forget about this kingdom because here's the big deal. You're, a kingdom here for, you're in this kingdom now and you're in submission to the leaders and authority, but you've been called out of that kingdom to another kingdom whose builder and maker is God, and that won't be forever. And so you live one way because you belong to the other way, right? In the first Peter, Peter says the same thing, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I mean, you can tell that they took their teaching right from Christ. Titus chapter 3, Paul is teaching pastors. He says, remind them, your people, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So I do that this morning. I remind you, even though it's hard, be submissive. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. But in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and some of the other apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel, and in the middle of the night, during their arrest and their time imprisonment, their time of imprisonment, an angel of the Lord opened the doors and told them to go back out and preach more. The captain of the temple and some of the officers took them aside and said, Hey, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. And now you want to put his blood on our hands. And Peter simply said, we must obey God rather than man. So see, there's that, there's that uh, tension. Hey, you arrested us. We didn't argue. We went to jail. But the Lord let us out. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to obey God. We're going to preach. And if you arrest us again, then we'll be arrested. But we're going to not obey you at the expense of disobeying God. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 4 just before this, the first time they were arrested, Peter and John were preaching, and they were questioned by the chief priest. And they told them then, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And this is what Peter and John said to them. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you judge. But we cannot help but speak the things we've seen and heard. And see, there again, you see that submission? Hey, if you determine this is wrong, you've got authority to determine that. But we're going to speak what we've seen and heard. And, of course, they would do that even to their death. And this is one of those points where I believe this two-kingdom idea is important. They belong to this kingdom. There's submission to it. But they're not going to disobey God and quit preaching the gospel. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters every week because they are faced with that often, even to the point of death, right? Acknowledging the civil authority while demonstrating an unwillingness to disobey God. Our confession even speaks to this. Chapter 24, entitled Civil Government. Listen to what it says. God, the supreme Lord and king of the whole world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him and over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose, he has armed them with the power of the sword to defend and encourage those who do good and punish evildoers. How can I handle it when somebody's elected that I think is awful and they shouldn't have been elected? I just trust that God puts leaders in authority, and even bad ones, <laughs> and for his purpose. It don't make me happy. It doesn't mean I'm not going to try to do what I can next time to find somebody else. But I'm not going to lay in bed at, at night awake, frightened, because there's an evil leader in control. Because we look back through the history of the church, and they've suffered under many, many evil leaders. And you know what's happened? As it's been told so many times, the blood of the martyrs just continues to plant the seeds of the church. And our confession goes on to say, because civil authorities are established by God for the purposes stated, we should submit in the Lord to them in everything lawful that they require. We should submit not only for fear of punishment, but also for the sake of conscience. They're just quoting scripture, the ones I just read. 
We ought to make requests and prayers for kings and everyone in authority so that under their rule we may live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. Maintaining this two-kingdom theology is so very important because we have to faithfully navigate obedience to the laws of man as they are instruments of good while never failing to obey the moral law of God because God is God, the government is not. Now, here's the thing about men. They can't keep that, in, they can't keep that straight. <laughs> you give some men authority, and they'll take it as far as they can. The, the Caesar worship is a great example, but it wouldn't be hard to find an example in our own day, would it not? Give somebody a little authority, and unfortunately, uh, they will take it to its extent and overreach their boundaries, and God knows all about that. And God has a way of limiting men when they need to be limited. All right? And one of the things that has happened that's so sad in evangelicalism today, especially in America and in Canada, but in other places, is that many in the church have become statists. Now, if you don't know what statism is, listen to this definition. The principle or policy of concentrating extensive economic, political, and related controls in the state at the cost of individual liberty. That's where so many are in the church. I give up my liberty because the government said I have to, right? So a statist is one who supports or believes in the sovereignty of a state. I heard R.C. Sproul say that he was talking with Francis Schaeffer back in the 70s and asking him, what is the one thing you fear most for the church? And he said, that's easy. I fear statism. I fear the day when the church becomes statists and they see the government as a God, if not supreme God and sovereign over all decisions. And my goodness, have we not seen it? How many of the church have accepted marriage that God did not ordain? How many in the church have accepted murdering babies that God certainly has not ordained in the name of life or the name of some kind of justice or uh, whatever it is that whatever reasoning is used? We saw this very recently and clearly in the coronavirus fiasco where suddenly everybody felt like they had authority over all people and especially the church. Can meet, you can't meet. You can go to Walmart and buy groceries, but you can't go to church. And we saw this lived out. And many of us, we talked about that at great length. And we just decided we're going to meet and have church. We'll be safe, but we're not going to cancel church we that's one of those points we felt like we're living in two kingdoms and we're as submissive as we can be but we're not going to uh forsake the assembling of ourselves together but in the past two decades we've watched many in the evangelical world turn to the state for its theology as i mentioned suddenly the state not god can determine what marriage is the state and not God can determine what sexuality is. And whatever the state determines, the church just swallows like a fish that's been starving. And somehow they call it all the gospel. It's not. The gospel is the gospel. It's one of the reasons one of the reasons we try so desperately to point out here this distinction between law and gospel. When the Bible says do something, that's law. 
When the Bible speaks of something done, that Christ is finished, that's gospel, okay? We can't do anything that God calls us to do because we're sinful. We read that in our catechism. What do we get from Adam? Sin. sin. We're incapable of obeying. But by grace, God gives us faith to believe. By grace, God gives us his spirit of sanctification to will us and cause us to will, to want, to do that which is right. And whenever we fail, we have grace and forgiveness to come back to Christ until we constantly are realizing more and more that our only hope really is Jesus Christ and his righteousness, not ours. And so we have to be careful not to fall in these traps. Well, you've got to love these people and you've got to accept what they do because that's the gospel. No, the gospel is the gospel. The gospel is finished. Now, if I, am I commanded to even love my enemies? Yes. God's commandments command that. But I will not stand by and allow a wicked, evil government to determine what God's word has said to be a lie and change it. And then adhere to that. I don't know if we'll ever get to the place that those we pray about often are in, but we easily could. We did see people in the last two years get turned into authorities, pastors be arrested for doing what? Just having church. They weren't they weren't burning buildings, they weren't beating people up, just having church. And it was enough to go to jail for in some places. And sadly, we've lost this. Two kingdom understanding that God is sovereign over all things, including government. And he has ordained it and put it in place. And we are citizens under those authorities where we live. However, men are evil and their intentions are not good. And when they rule badly and institute bad and not good. We have to remember that we are first and foremost citizens of another kingdom. And it might cost us to say that. And it might cost us to make that stand. We do not go along with evil. We do not promote sexual perversion of any kind. We don't call evil good and good evil. We are to obey God even at our own peril. Michael Horton has written a lot about this subject, but I found an article he had written reflecting on Augustine's book, The City of God, which is all about this two-kingdom idea. Listen to what he says. Although the city of man, and that's the kingdom we live under, right? Augustine makes this distinction. There's a city of man and a city of God. And you can understand the city of man is the one where we live now, right? Although the city of man is destined to perish, God is both creating a new city, the church, from its ruins and preserving the old city by his common grace until peace and justice arrive with Christ's return. In this era of common grace, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He calls us to imitate his clemency. So Christians have two callings. The high calling of Christ to belong to his body and the calling to the world as citizens, parents, children, friends, co-workers, and neighbors because God has commanded us to love our enemies. Gathering the new Israel, Jew and Gentile around himself by his spirit. i skip this part. Consequently, each city has its own polity serving distinct ends through distinct means. Although some of its citizens are converted to citizenship in the city of God, the earthly city is always Babylon. 
And like Daniel, believers pray for the city, the work in the city, contribute to the city's general welfare, and even fight its armies. However, they fight in its armies. However, they never forget that they are exiles and pilgrims. Babylon is never the promised land. One reason I can never go along with theonomy, Babylon is never the promised land. God is going to come back, send his son back, and at that moment he will destroy evil and the kingdom will be set up. The kingdom of God advances through the proclamation of the gospel, not through the properly coercive powers of the state. Although the church may take advantage of the relative peace that is possible in the earthly city, the good things that we do with non-Christian citizens to preserve and enlarge society really are good, but they are not ultimate goods. The earthly city will never be transformed into the city of God, this side of Christ's return and glory. So a Christian would then approach politics not with the question as to how the world can be best saved, but how it can best be served in the time that we are in. I thought that was a great statement. We're not concerned about how can the world be saved, but how can it be served? God will save his people as we live the gospel and preach it. Calvin even spoke to this. In fact, it was Calvin and Luther that revived Augustine's theories here. He said, we are under a twofold government so that we do not, as commonly happens, unwisely mingle the two which have a completely different nature. Just as the body and the spirit are distinct without being intrinsically opposed, Christ's spiritual kingdom and the civil jurisdiction are things completely distinct. Yet this distinction does not lead us to consider the whole nature of government as a thing polluted, which has nothing to do with Christian men. These two kingdoms are distinct, yet they are not at variance. They're not at variance because God is sovereign, right? So we never have to look on the news and go, oh man, God's lost control again. This place is spiraling out of out of sight. Who knows what's coming next? Hey, again, we live in a unique place being able to vote, being able to voice our opinions. And sometimes our voicing our opinions are becoming more and more narrow and muffled. And we should do that. And we should vote according to our conscience and according to the scriptures. I think that's a big responsibility. But hey, God is in control of it. And we can rest at night because he is. And we can rest at day. And it brings me back to our text. What was happening in Jesus' day? Some had found a way to mingle these two institutions and to ignore all the others, right? You had the Herodians who didn't care about God's kingdom, but they cared a lot about Herod's. You had the Jews who hated the Herod's but wanted everything that God had to offer and wanted his kingdom back. And this has certainly been a problem throughout the church age. The Crusades, the Holy Wars, all those things were mingling these two things that didn't need to be mingled. You, Jesus said that the kingdom of God doesn't come through wars and by sword. You can't beat somebody into submission, uh, even though we've tried that a lot. Not only physically, but with our preaching. We thought if we beg people and beat them enough, they will eventually succumb to the good news, right? But the power of the good news is that the Spirit brings people, and they come willingly. But whenever we try to collapse these two institutions, it always is a disaster. Jesus didn't, and we shouldn't. One last thing here from Michael Horton, and I'll close. We carry out our vocations in the church and in the world in distinct ways through distinct means. We need not Christianize culture in order to appreciate it and participate in it with the gifts that God has given us as well as our non-Christian neighbors. Does Does that just sort of lift a burden off of you? We don't have to Christianize the world. 
We are to be the church and preach the gospel. And when God saves his people, he translates them from one kingdom to the next. They're still in Babylon, so to speak, and they're under that jurisdiction, but ultimately they're in another kingdom. So I have no aim to Christianize culture. I just preach the gospel and trust God to convert citizens from one city to another. We ought to live our lives in obedience, support the good, rebuke the evil, obey the civil magistrates up to the point of disobeying God. And if that costs me my citizenship here, it only expedites my move to the city that I'm looking for, right? The one that we all long for, whose builder and maker is God. What a great thing that Jesus taught us. This is an amazing passage. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And God, we pray that you give us more wisdom and insight and understanding and discernment about the things that we've read and that we've heard. I pray that the teaching has been faithful. And if not, that you would correct me. Father, we just ask that you would bless our fellowship and the people that you have put together here for your purposes. And you would help us to learn these lessons. How we can love those around us and even love the world that you've put us in and participate in it while obeying you and your commands and trusting that through the gospel you're going to save your people, the people for whom Jesus died. They will all be saved, every single one of them. And as Paul said one time, you have people in this city. We can trust that everywhere we go you have people there. We don't know who they are, but you do. And so we just preach the gospel to every creature knowing that you will save your people. God bless our time now as we celebrate all these truths through this wonderful means of grace you've given us as we partake of the supper together. We remember exactly what Jesus did for us, the body that was given and was bruised and broken for us and the stripes that were received that we might be healed and brought from death to life the blood that covers our sin. And we do so until he returns because we've been instructed to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.